Well, hey, good evening. Once again, Fathom Academy, uh, welcome uh, Midsummer Week 9. We're getting very close to the end of this 12-week course, uh, but I'm thankful that you have stuck with us. I'm Chris Martin. I'm the lead pastor here at Fathom. Great to have you with us. Uh, Ryan is about to get up and uh, bring us through the second part of really what's kind of almost like a mini-series inside of this larger series on uh, the topic of soteriology, how uh, salvation works. And it started last week talking about the life and the death of Christ uh, and really the mode of atonement or, or modes, I should say, of atonement. And tonight we move into uh, the resurrection and the ascension and the exaltation of uh, the, the, the son of Jesus Christ. And so um, uh, th- these, are, these are two sides of the same coin, life, death, and resurrection, uh, ascension, exaltation. Uh, of, of Christ. So these are really important things. Tonight, I think we will uh, be challenged in our understanding of uh, what happened in the resurrection and ultimately looking at a piece of, of this, this theology that's maybe underplayed, which is the ascension and exaltation of Christ. What's he doing now? These things will, I think, blow your mind. So I'm looking forward to this. I hope you are as well. So buckle in. We're going to have a good night. Let me pray for us tonight. Lord, we are once again grateful for you, grateful for uh, for Jesus, for sending your son, the incarnate one, to live, uh, to die, to be raised, to ascend, and ultimately to sit at your right hand. Uh, Lord, we are thankful for him tonight as we study him. Lord, would your spirit enlighten our hearts, open our, open our minds, uh, and, and soften us that we might learn to love you and worship you more fully. We love you. Uh, we pray these things in, in Jesus' name and by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Well, howdy, folks. Good to be back with you again here for week nine. Uh, as we continue on in our study of Christian theology and soteriology in particular. And when we last left Jesus, so to speak, he was still on the cross as we were discussing models or modes of the atonement last week, looking at some of the diverse ways that the Bible talks about the death of Jesus and what it accomplishes, not only on our behalf, but on behalf of the entire created order, which has, uh, because of human sin, been subjected to death and decay, as Paul puts it in Romans 8. And so uh, that's where Jesus is uh, since we last left him. But the good news is of the Christian gospel that he did not stay there, that Jesus conquered the power of death. He rose from the grave uh, and he now lives forevermore, never to die again at the right hand of the father in glory, in power. And we're going to talk about all that tonight because uh, this is... uh, yeah, this is an area of the work of Christ that gets short shrift, right? We, we, as evangelicals, we tend to focus primarily on the death of Jesus. And we might talk a little bit about the life of Jesus, uh, his perfect life of perfect obedience or the cool miracles and Jesus tricks that he does. And we may even talk about the resurrection a little bit, but man, uh, we'll hear almost nothing about the ascension and we don't pay as enough attention uh, to the exaltation of Jesus as we ought to. But the truth is, uh, there's a lot to talk about here. And that's where we're going to spend our evening together tonight uh, in what is called the exaltation of Jesus. Classically, Christian theologians have distinguished between two phases of the the work of Jesus. Number one, uh, the first phase is often called Jesus's humiliation, the humiliation of the son, where he steps uh, out of uh, heaven, so to speak, to become incarnate as a human being. Uh, So he humiliates himself in this way. He humbles himself 
by taking the form of a human being, and he is humiliated in his death. Uh, and then depending on which theologians you ask, his descent into hell, that's a whole can of worms that we don't need to talk about right now. But now we are in phase two of the work of Jesus, uh, which is traditionally called his exaltation. So if he is stepping down in his humiliation, we are now looking at him stepping up. And this begins with him stepping out of the grave uh, and then heading towards his ascension. So uh, we're going to do this in four parts, as is our custom We're going to talk, number one, about the resurrection, what it is and what it is not and what it means. We're going to talk about the ascension of Jesus, uh, which is attested to very briefly in the New Testament. Uh, Once, uh, very, very briefly in the Gospel of Luke, and then again in in the companion volume to the Gospel of Luke, the Acts of the Apostles. But there's lots of important implications about the ascension that we're going to talk about. And then we're going to talk about the exaltation of Jesus Christ. And by that, we mean, what is Jesus Christ doing now in his ongoing work? I think sometimes, uh, even if unconsciously, we have a tendency to think about Jesus as sort of an actor who has had a lot of lines early in the play, and now he doesn't have any lines at all until the very end. So he's just sort of sitting backstage waiting to come back out for the grand finale. But that's not actually true. That's not how the New Testament presents it either. As we're going to see, the New Testament writers depict Jesus as doing lots of things now in his exalted state. His work is ongoing. So we'll talk about that. And then we'll make a few concluding remarks, uh, drawing it all together. So let's talk about the resurrection. Uh, Sometimes when it comes to talking about Christian doctrines, it can be helpful to talk about what they are not. So what we're going to do here uh, by way of introduction to the doctrine of the resurrection is talk about what we do not mean by resurrection. Uh, number one, uh, this theory is kind of not, not as popular anymore, but the, it, it had a moment. It had a, some 15 minutes of fame. We might put it that way. Uh, the resurrection is not a resuscitation. It may sound strange to you, but there is uh, even some scholarly work that argues that Jesus perhaps was not actually dead. Uh, he just went into a a state of sort of near death, uh, a comatose state perhaps where he was beaten within an inch of his life to use that uh, expression. Uh, This is sometimes called the swoon theory, uh, which is the idea that Jesus sort of went into a swoon. I don't know who invented that language. It sounds like a Victorian Jane Eyre character swooning onto a couch. Uh, But the idea here is that uh, perhaps Jesus didn't die. uh, And so he didn't actually really rise from the dead. He just recovered. Now, there's a couple problems here. Uh, Number one, we don't have any record in the ancient world of someone uh, saying, you know, oh, man, that crucifixion was really bad. It almost killed me. No, crucifixion was an exquisite uh, execution device. And the Romans were professional killers. Uh, no one survives crucifixions. Uh, and uh, not only that, um, yeah, it's just a little bit far-fetched to sort of suggest that someone in that state would be er- uh, buried in an earthen tomb and roll away a boulder 72 hours later, right? So that theory uh, was around for a little bit. No one really uh, credibly holds it anymore, but we don't mean a resuscitation. Uh, When the New Testament writers talk about the death of Jesus, they use the Greek word thanatos, death, literal biological death. We're going to come back to that. It is not 
uh, a figment of the disciples' imagination. This view was very popular with the rise of liberal theology in the 19th century. And it's associated with a German New Testament scholar by the name of David Friedrich Strauss. Uh, D.F. Strauss argued that what happened is that when Jesus died, uh, the trauma of it, the shock of it was so profound that it essentially sent the early Christian community into a collective state of derangement. And so they imagined that they saw Jesus. Much like, uh, you'll sometimes hear stories of people who have been married for a long time and they have a spouse that dies. They'll say, you know, I, I sometimes hear my spouse talking to me or sometimes I think I see them. Uh, something like this. And Strauss argues that really what's going on here is a case of collective psychosis. They were so traumatized by the death of Jesus that they thought that he had risen from the dead, but he was really a figment of their imagination. Um, couple problems here. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that the resurrected Jesus appeared to tons and tons of people, not just the immediate 11 disciples. And he appeared to lots and lots of people over a long period of time, which suggests that if this is true, this mass psychosis had to have been sustained in different geographical locations to people unconnected to one another over a long period of time. It just doesn't seem that feasible. And another uh, problem uh, is that uh, there were other would-be messiahs who were crucified. Uh, Jesus is not the only one. Uh, there's another, a very famous would-be messiah by the name of Simon Bar Kokhba, who led a rebellion against the Romans and was executed. And he stayed dead and no one ever claimed that he was alive. And he carried a pretty significant following himself. So Strauss's theory uh, doesn't quite hold up to scrutiny. He was not, uh, by uh, the resurrection was not an apparition or a phantasm. This is pretty interesting. In the Hebraic worldview, we have some reason to believe that some Jews believe that when people died, their ghost or their spirit uh, could kind of be summoned and you could see it. Uh, for instance, we have a good example with King Saul, Israel's king, who summons the ghost of Samuel. He hires a witch to summon Samuel and Samuel shows up and is apparently recognizable because Saul recognizes him and can speak with him. And actually we know that for instance, in the book of Acts, Peter is in prison where, uh, where God affects a sort of dramatic, miraculous escape from prison. And Peter is rushing through the night to the house where the disciples are gathered. And he knocks on the door and a servant girl opens the door and looks at Peter. And she is so frightened that she slams the door in his face and runs back in and tells everyone, I think I just saw Peter's ghost at the door. Uh, turns out it was actually Peter. Uh, the problem here is even if it was uh, plausible that some Jews did believe that you could kind of see a person's spirit after death, um, the New Testament writers depict the resurrected Jesus in incredibly visceral physical terms. He's always doing physical things like eating. And he invites the disciples, Thomas, doubting Thomas, to touch him. And for instance, like in 1 John, uh, John says, we're bearing witness to that which we have seen with our eyes. And then he uses the Greek word, uh, that which we have handled or touched. It's a very physical word. It means to, to grab something. Right? So uh, obviously the New Testament writers did not think of Jesus' uh, resurrection as an apparition. Okay, last thing that the resurrection is not, it is not a metaphor for the experience of new birth and forgiveness. Uh, this interpretation of the resurrection 
remains very popular in some forms of liberal theology. And it was uh, very influential uh, in the 19th and 20th centuries in particular. And the idea here is some interpreters of the New Testament have said, well, yeah, the disciples don't believe that Jesus literally rose from the dead. And Christian faith doesn't teach that Jesus literally rose from the dead. The resurrection, rather, is a symbol of new life or a fresh awareness of forgiveness or life with God or something like this. Um, this became very popular after the enlightenment, which it became hard for people to believe that someone could be raised from the dead. And so a way of interpreting it was to say, well, resurrection is a metaphor, right? About new life. I've heard sermons uh, to this effect. Uh, and so here's the problem. It's exactly the opposite of what the new Testament says about the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, for instance, in first Corinthians 15, Paul says, if Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, if he didn't rise from the dead, then I'm going to find another religion because this one is hard. And so I'm going to go eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow I'm going to die. And in fact, the word that they use for resurrection in the New Testament, anastasis, uh, the work of N.T. Wright, a, a very uh, well-regarded uh, New Testament scholar, has shown that every time that word is used in ancient literature, it, it means literal resurrection from the dead. There is no credible way to argue that the New Testament teaches that the resurrection of Jesus is a metaphor, although that view persists. So what is the resurrection? How does the gospel present it? Well, here we're running into the same kind of issue that we do with the cross of Jesus. Even though the resurrection narratives are prominent in the gospels, they don't offer an interpretation of what the resurrection means. And in fact, uh, three out of the four gospels, uh, well, yeah, two out of the four end kind of with the resurrection sort of immediately, uh, Matthew and Mark's version. Um, and so we get some details about the resurrection narratives, but we don't get a full theology of the resurrection, if I could put it that way. So what can we say about the resurrection? Well, number one, the gospels attest that the tomb was empty. And in fact, we know that even Jesus's opponents acknowledge that the tomb where Jesus was buried was empty three days later. And we know this because one of the gospel writers tells us that the Jewish leaders devised a cover-up story uh, to circulate that Jesus's disciples had stolen his body and had hidden it to make it seem like he had raised from the dead. So it seems that everyone agrees that the tomb is empty. Uh, but what does it mean, right? Well, that's one of the central questions of uh, Christian faith. What does the empty tomb mean? We're going to talk more about that in a little bit. There are, as I've already said a little bit about this, so I won't belabor it. Uh, the gospel narratives present the, the resurrection of Jesus as bodily. This is very, very important. He does not rise as a spirit, as an immaterial being or some sort of spiritual angelic being. He rises in his body. And we know this because all of the gospels emphasize that his disciples touched him, right? We have Mary Magdalene, for instance, trying to grab on to Jesus uh, after he's resurrected or the disciples, he invites them to look and see and touch and feel him. And he eats with them. He performs embodied acts. This is very, very important to the theology of the resurrection, which I'll talk about in just a moment, that, that the resurrection is bodily. It was unique. Okay. Uh, almost all Jews, but not all, in, in the period where Jesus lived, believed that at the end of human history, God would raise everyone from the dead to face final judgment. This was called the final resurrection, or sometimes it was called the resurrection of the last day. 
almost all Jews believed this. We know that Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, but they were in the minority. And you can see this all over the place in the, uh, the Gospels. I'll give you just one example. Uh, in John chapter 11, where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, uh, his, Lazarus's sisters, Mary and Martha, are really distressed because Lazarus had been sick and they had called for Jesus to come and heal him, but Jesus delayed in coming to see them. And he gets there late and Lazarus is already dead. And Jesus says to him, don't worry, don't cry. He's going to live again. And uh, I think it's, I think it's Martha. It's either Mary or Martha. There's only two choices. One of them says to Jesus, oh, I know. I know that my brother will live again on the last day, right? Which suggests that it was a common view among Jews that at the end of time, God was going to raise everyone up. And Jesus says quite strikingly in that passage, I am the resurrection and the life. And what was unique about the resurrection of Jesus is that everybody expected that there would be a resurrection at the end of history, but no one expected it to happen in the middle of history to one person, right? And this is what is so profoundly sort of shocking about the resurrection of Jesus, even in its context where people believed that people could be raised from the dead, right? Nobody expected that it would happen to one person in the middle of history. Which leads us to the final point that we kind of take away from the resurrection narratives of the gospel is that his resurrection was unexpected, which is kind of weird because there's times in the gospels where he just explicitly tells people, hey, I'm going to be crucified. Then I'm going to rise again on the third day. And the disciples are like, uh, what, do you, what do you mean, Jesus? I, I don't know what you mean when you say that. And then after his resurrection, he's like, hey, do you remember that one time when I told you that I was going to die and be raised again on the third day? What I meant is that I was going to die and be raised again on the third day. But even so, people are startled by the resurrection of Jesus. And not only that, they're afraid. The gospel of Mark ends with the women at the empty tomb frightened, afraid to tell anyone what had happened because it was uh, such a shocking and new thing that God had done. Uh, and so that's something that we've kind of lost, I think, because we have 2,000 years of tradition of Christians celebrating Easter, but just think about uh, what it must have been like to, to see Jesus resurrected from the dead. Uh, how does Paul think about the resurrection? So we've looked a little bit about it uh, in, in the Gospels, but I just want to draw out a few main points about the resurrection in Paul. Uh, the resurrection is central to Paul's thinking. For Paul, there is no Christian faith without the resurrection. He says, if the dead are not raised, we are the most pitiable of all people. You ought to feel bad for us because we're a bunch of suckers, essentially, is what he says, if the dead are not raised. So, of course, the resurrection is the engine of early Christian faith, and it's at the center of Paul's theology. And I want to just draw out a few main points that Paul makes about the crucifix, uh, the, sorry, the resurrection, rather. In 1 Corinthians 15, he refers to the resurrected Christ as the first fruits from the dead which is a kind of an interesting little phrase. But what he means is that in the resurrection, Jesus has somehow secured the future hope of all people who are in Christ. So he has gone through death and out the other side. And for Paul, the implication is crystal clear that that means that those who die in Christ will also follow Jesus through death and be raised to new life. He is the first fruits from the dead. He is the first one, but he has led the way through death. And that connects to something we were talking about last week, this Christus Victor model of the atonement. Jesus conquering the power of sin and death, breaking its chains, right? The, 
breaking the hold that it has on human beings. For Paul, the resurrection, uh, among other things, means that God has broken the chains of death and that uh, we are no longer ultimately slaves to death. Uh, which is exactly, <laughs> exactly what I just said is the second point. Paul speaks of the resurrection as the conquest of death. Uh, a very famous passage in 1 Corinthians, he sort of mocks death with a little ditty. He says, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? He's quite literally making fun of death, which is really interesting, right? Because we are so afraid of death, right? Uh, Death is usually the second most common phobia. The first is actually public speaking. Isn't that interesting that most people would literally rather die than give like a speech? Uh, But death is... uh, it's constantly looming on the horizon. We think about death all the time, or we try not to think about it because we're so afraid of it. And man, we live in a culture that is terrified of death. We pretend like it doesn't exist. We live as if we're going to live forever. And we don't like to talk about our death. Uh, one of my favorite writers ever is, is a novelist by the name of Kurt Vonnegut. He's a pretty wild guy. He was an atheist, a humanist, uh, and in some ways a profoundly unhappy man, but he always said facetiously in his, in his books, he said, if I ever die, and then in parentheses, he would put God forbid, uh, and then he would continue his sentence as if uh, kind of a, 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 a wink, wink at the idea that we try to live as if we're never going to die. We're so afraid of death. But if Paul is right, and if Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, Paul says, you can mock death as a believer. Now, I've never died. I presume that it's pretty terrifying when it happens, but we can rest secure in the knowledge that Jesus Christ, our brother, has been through death first. He's conquered its power. And in some sense, we can mock it. We don't have to be afraid of death in the same way uh, that folks in our culture are. We have the certain hope of the resurrection. Paul says something really interesting in Romans uh, 4. When he refers to Jesus as having been raised for our justification, we almost exclusively think of justification, which is a doctrine we're going to talk about next week, in connection with the death of Christ. But Paul somehow sees the resurrection as somehow having completed the work of atonement, which makes sense. If Jesus dies for our sins, but then stays in the ground, we're still dead in our sins, he says in 1 Corinthians 15. But in Romans 4, he says that he has been raised for our justification that he has completed the work of atonement by rising from the dead. Very quickly, I just want to talk about some of the ways that uh, other New Testament writers talk about the resurrection of Jesus. One of my favorite references to the resurrection is in Peter's Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2, where he says that death could not hold him. I think about this often as I think about uh, what a frightful and sort of um, depressing place the world can be. There seems to be death everywhere. Uh, In fact, you know, we're recording this now in an empty room because of a deadly pandemic that is ravaging every corner of the globe. Uh, And death is the final enemy, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the last boss to fight. If you grew up playing video games, you have to fight a boss at the end, right? The biggest, baddest enemy, right? Uh, The bad guy, Uh, that you have to have a showdown with at the end of the action movie. And Paul says that Jesus Christ has destroyed him. Death can't hold him. Death is the best that evil can do, and it isn't enough. This is the universal testimony of the New Testament. Death couldn't hold him. I love that image. Like you've got the cords of death. That's image that the uh, 
the, the Psalms use quite often, the cords of death entangling us. Uh, you can see the cords desperately trying to hold Jesus in the grave and he breaks forth. It's so beautiful. The resurrection is also seen as the destroyer of tyrants, particularly in the book of Acts. What's interesting, four or five times in the book of Acts, when Paul is asked why he's on trial or where he has an opportunity to kind of present his case, he says, I'm on trial for one thing. It is teaching the resurrection of the dead, which is interesting because why would a secular ruler care about the resurrection of the dead? Well, one of the things that the resurrection does is it uh, guarantees God's perfect justice. Resurrection means that no death is insignificant, that no life is forgotten. And if God intends to raise up every life that has been taken, that is bad news indeed for tyrants, right? Because it means that life is not disposable. It is not cheap. And in fact, uh, we've got the resurrection as a doctrine that is really terrifying the powers of the world in the New Testament. Uh, Because if the resurrection is true, then Jesus Christ is the true ruler of the world. And all the things that the, the, the rulers of this age do are going to be held to account. So the resurrection is integrally connected to God's sense of justice, his perfect justice. In 1 Peter, the apostle Peter refers to the resurrection as new birth into a living hope. I love that. The resurrection means that we have a living hope because we can live now in light of the sure promise that we will be in life with God, even after this biological life expires. It is a living hope, the basis of the Christian life. In a text that I mentioned last week from Revelation chapter one, uh, for my money, one of my favorite passages in all the New Testament, where the, the, the resurrected and glorified Jesus says to John, I hold the keys to death and Hades. And what a thought that you and I worship a God who holds the keys to death. So what does the resurrection mean? We've already talked a little bit about this, so I won't spend a lot of time here. Uh, A couple things. Number one, it means that it's the final vindication of the son. Uh, In Romans 1, Paul talks about that uh, Jesus Christ was declared the son of God through his resurrection from the dead. In other words, uh, the resurrection confirms that Jesus is who he says he is. He's the son of God, and it vindicates his work of atonement on our behalf. Uh, The theologian Richard Gaffin has summed up a lot of the New Testament's teaching on the resurrection by saying that it is the inaugurating first fruits of the eschatological resurrection harvest. In regular people speech, the resurrection means that Jesus has gone through death and out the other side, and we will be with him when we die, and we will be resurrected like him. We'll talk more about that here in a minute. All of the gospel accounts depict the resurrection as the new creation. It is the inbreaking of the new creation. The whole gospel story centers on the idea that God is going to redeem his fallen creation and remake it into a new heavens and a new earth. This vision is all over, for instance, in the prophet Isaiah, and it is all over, for instance, at the very end of the story in Revelation chapter 21 and 22 in particular. And the resurrection is the key to all of this. The resurrection is the moment that marks the beginning of God's new creation. And so we can live a life of new creation because of the resurrection of Jesus. And the way that the gospels do this is they all emphasize that Jesus Christ was raised on the first day of the week when God made the heavens and the earth. You remember Revelation, sorry, Genesis chapter one in the beginning, 
God made the heavens and the earth. And they all emphasize that when Jesus walks out of the grave on that first day of the week, where is he? He is in a garden, right? It is uh, a new Eden, uh, which is no longer beset by the powers of sin and death. And it is the pattern for our sanctification. Paul makes this argument in a couple different places. Romans chapter 6 in particular, when he's talking about baptism, he says, in your baptism, you have been crucified with Jesus and you have been raised with Jesus. So for the New Testament writers, in a very real sense, your sinful self, the flesh that is subject to sinful passions and desires, it has been crucified in the work of Jesus and you have been resurrected with him. So in a literal sense, they mean this, not metaphorically, you and I can live the resurrection every day because of the the work of Jesus. All right, let's talk a little bit about the ascension and the exaltation of Jesus. These are two doctrines that are related fairly closely to each other. Uh, As we did with the resurrection, we'll talk about what the ascension is not. Uh, The ascension is not the disappearance of Jesus into a disembodied state. Sometimes the ascension is misunderstood this way, where Jesus goes up into heaven. We'll talk a little bit more about what that actually means in in the biblical worldview, what heaven is, that he somehow went into sort of a disembodied state. Uh, But the, the New Testament teaches that that's not quite the case. In the ascension, Jesus Christ, as an incarnate human being, returns to the right hand of the Father. And so, as N.T. Wright, who we mentioned a little bit ago, has written uh, very memorably, there is a human being, he says, at the helm of the universe. Uh, So Jesus Christ still has his resurrection body. And we're going to talk next week about why that's really important. Uh, The ascension is not a metaphor for Jesus' spiritual omnipresence. Uh, the, The gospel accounts seem to suggest that Jesus has a physical body that can in some ways transcend the ordinary limits of embodied existence, but in other ways uh, is still constrained by them. So Jesus has a human body. uh, So he's not a spiritual sort of omnipresence. Uh, At least that's not what the Ascension teaches. The Ascension is not a transfer of power from Jesus to the church. It has sometimes been interpreted in this way that uh, Jesus says, okay, my work here is finished. I'm handing over the keys to the car to you guys. You guys take it from here. That's a bad understanding of the ascension. After the resurrection of Jesus in Matthew 28, he says, all authority on heaven and earth, it's been given to me. I have it. He's the only one who is competent to govern the universe. So he retains all that authority, but he does deputize his people as ambassadors representing his authority, but he has not transferred all of his power to the church. Number uh, four, uh, just very briefly here, the Ascension is not any kind of comment on spatial geography or cosmology. The Ascension is not trying to tell us anything about where heaven is or what the relationship between heaven and uh, earth is as physical spaces. You may know, some of you will will know the name Yuri Gargarin, who was a Russian cosmonaut, the first human being in space. Of course, he was a Marxist. He was an atheist. And he got up there and he says, I looked for God all over the place and I didn't find him. He wasn't out there. Well, of course, the Ascension is not trying to tell us that Jesus went up into the clouds and now he's in space somewhere. Um, Like if you had a rocket ship that could go far enough, you could somehow find him out there. That's not what heaven means in the New Testament's lexicon. Uh, Heaven is God's space. It is God's 
dimension. It is where God is. It's not a physical location in the same way uh, that this is a physical location. So when the Bible speaks of below and above, it's not really trying to say anything geographical. It's not as if for the biblical writers, you could dig down to the center of the earth and find hell down there. Uh, That's not what they think. And in fact, we actually already checked that out. We tried it with that Brendan Fraser movie, Journey to the Center of the Earth. Um, And he got down there and I think there were dinosaurs. I can't remember. And anyway, not important. So the Ascension, as I mentioned at the beginning of our talk this evening, is only mentioned twice uh, in the New Testament texts, once in the Gospel of Luke and once in the Acts of the Apostles, which was the the second volume of the Gospel of Luke. They're intended to be read as one work. Uh, in Luke chapter 24, Jesus ascends while his disciples look. They're taken to, uh, he's taken up into the heavens, and it says they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. One of the things I want to emphasize here is that the ascension energizes the church's mission. So, in fact, the ascension is not the end of the story. It is sometimes read that way, where Jesus comes, he dies, he raises from, raises from the dead, which was like a, a huge ordeal. It was really hard. Jesus is tired. Uh, and now he gets a happy ending. He gets to go back to heaven on a cloud and hang out with his dad, right? Uh, it's not the end of the story, actually. Luke presents it as the beginning of the story where the real work of the church begins with the ascension of Jesus. Uh, And so they return to Jerusalem with great joy. Uh, After seeing Jesus ascend to the right hand of the Father, they set about the work of mission. Uh, Luke says something similar in Acts chapter 1, where Jesus ascends. And in this account, there's an angel who appears. And they, they look at this angel. And the angel says to him, Men of Galilee, why do you stand there looking into heaven? Right? This Jesus, uh, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way that you saw him go. This tells us a couple of things. Number one, the ascension is always tied to the return of Jesus. It is part one of a two-part story of his ascension and his return in glory. But that doesn't mean that we just sit around gazing into the heavens, waiting for Jesus to come back. Uh, Sometimes evangelicals have had an unhealthy preoccupation with eschatology, obsession with trying to discern when Jesus will return, calculating, reading the signs of the times. And uh, when we do that, we forget the angel's words here. He says, men of Galilee, in other words, followers of Jesus, why are you just gaping into the skies? Why are you obsessing when Jesus is going to return? He's going to return at the moment that the father has determined. In the meantime, He has deputized you to be his witnesses. And in fact, the ascension appears right before Jesus uh, says to the disciples, you are going to be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria uh, and to the ends of the earth, right? So the ascension does not mean that we just sort of sit around and wait for Jesus to come back. In fact, it is to energize the church's mission. So what does it mean? Well, the ascension orients our view of the relationship between heaven and earth. I've already said a little bit about this. It's not a geographical comment. It does suggest, though, that the ascension uh, shows that uh, by the work of Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit, there are moments where heaven and earth can kind of overlap and human beings can live their lives on earth in light of heaven uh, because of the ascension. The ascension prevents triumphalism and despair. Uh, It prevents triumphalism because... uh, Yeah, it it reminds us that Jesus Christ remains in charge. He is on the throne of the universe. We are not, which means that we do not have the burden 
of making sure that the kingdom comes on earth. Now, of course, we are to work in ways that are consistent with the kingdom. The kingdom is inaugurated in the work of Jesus Christ, and it is made possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. But you and I, we're not going to build it. Uh, and, and it's not as if we can if we could just pull together all the best social programs, and if we could just figure this out, we could make the kingdom come on earth. The Ascension reminds us that Jesus is on the throne and his reign will be complete when he returns in glory. And it also prevents despair for the same reason. When you get discouraged with how things are going, right? I feel this all the time in ministry, discouraged all the time, right? Uh, You know, does the work that we do, does it make any difference? right? Uh, What are we doing here? Are we wasting our time? The Ascension reminds us that Jesus Christ has commissioned us to do the work of Christian mission and that he has sent his spirit so that we can do it and that he remains on the throne in glory and he will see to it as he promised the disciples that the gates of hell won't prevail against us. And so the Ascension has to always be linked with Pentecost, the giving of the spirit, we talked uh, several weeks back, four weeks back now, about, about the, um, the giving of the Spirit, pneumatology. So the ascension is linked with the giving of the Spirit, and it is always linked to the second coming of Jesus Christ, which we're going to talk about in our very last talk together when we talk about eschatology. But number one, what the, the ascension narratives are really trying to do is get you to think of Daniel chapter seven. If you've ever read the book of Daniel, you'll know that it's absolutely bonkers. It's full of all kinds of strange apocalyptic imagery and strange, almost hallucinogenic dreams uh, where Daniel gets a glimpse into the heavenly realm where he sees really bizarre stuff. But there's a chapter right in the middle of the book, chapter seven, that is central to the way that Jesus understands his ministry. Uh, Daniel chapter seven uh, starts with these images of these terrible mutant beasts that are emerging out of the chaotic waters of anti-creation. And they are terrorizing God's people. And these represent the various kingdoms of the earth and all of their cruelty and power. Uh, And Daniel's looking at it and he is in total despair because no one can stop these beasts, right? And probably you feel like that. You look around at the world and there's evil running rampant. There's so many problems. It just does not seem like anyone can do anything to stop it. We feel totally powerless against it. But then in Daniel 7, he says, I saw someone like a son of man, right? And as you may know, son of man is the way that Jesus likes to refer to himself. Uh, He almost exclusively refers to himself as the son of man. It's a reference to Daniel 7. And the son of man comes and he conquers the beasts and he slays the most terrible of the beasts. And it says that he ascends on the clouds to the right hand of the divine majesty where he reigns alongside God, okay? Very important story in the Hebrew scriptures, very important in Jesus' self-understanding. And Luke, in the Ascension narratives, is trying to say, hey, you know that, remember that crazy scene in Daniel 7, where the Son of Man conquers all the beasts, he overcomes all the powers of evil in the world, and he ascends on a cloud to the right hand of the Father? Luke is saying, that's exactly what's happening here. By depicting Jesus as being taken on a cloud to sit at the right hand of the Father, he is evoking that image of Daniel chapter 7. And he's saying, this is the Son of Man. This is the promised one who would slay the beast and would reign from the right hand of the Father. And so uh, Luke really wants you to see the ascension as the coronation of Jesus Christ, as the world's rightful ruler. 
So in our moments of despair, when we look around and there seems to be beasts still wreaking havoc in God's good creation, we can be confident because of the ascension that Jesus Christ is on the throne. He's on the throne. Uh, it's, a, it's a thought worth holding on to. And we'll close here by talking about what does he do from the throne? What is he doing up there? And we're going to close by talking about the exaltation of Jesus Christ. The New Testament, in lots of different places, talks about the exaltation of Jesus. He's been humiliated in his incarnation and his death, and now he has been exalted, where he sits at the right hand of the Father, which in biblical idiom, right? Remember that Daniel 7 chapter? uh, Biblical idiom suggests that sitting at the right hand of the Father means having dominion and reigning alongside Yahweh, the God of Israel, and sharing the divine identity. And this is precisely how, for instance, the Apostle Paul depicts the risen Christ. In Ephesians 1, he he speaks of Jesus as being seated far above every rule and authority, over every dominion, over every power and principality. Jesus becomes preeminent, and he reigns supreme. And he does this precisely through the humiliation and shame of the cross which is a good lesson for us. The way to glory in the Christian worldview is always through the cross. No exaltation without humiliation. In Ephesians 2, he says in a very early Christian hymn that uh, Paul is probably taking from someone else, he says that every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. So the exaltation of Jesus is the culmination of his total lordship where everyone whether they like it or not, we'll have to acknowledge Jesus as the world's rightful ruler. So what is going on here? I want to talk about the ongoing work of the exalted son. Uh, a Dutch theologian by the name of Herman Bovink has said it very well in one of his books. He said, even in his state of exaltation, there still remains much for Christ to do. As I mentioned earlier, we may have a tendency to think about Jesus's work as sort of mostly being over for the minute. He's done most of the heavy lifting, and now he's just waiting to return in glory at the very end of the story. And while it is true that Christians await Jesus's glorious return, he is still doing lots of work on our behalf. Uh, Like what, you might ask? Well, uh, as Colossians 1 says it, or Hebrews 1, he is holding all things together, which is sort of an important job. If your job feels stressful, and I'm sure it is, at least be grateful that you don't have to hold the universe together, right? Because the text suggests that if Jesus stops doing this work for even one moment, all of everything falls apart, right? And Paul says in Colossians 1, in him, all things hold together. Hebrews chapter 1 says uh, that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So Jesus Christ in his exalted state preserves creation from nothingness right? Uh, Sin is bad and it's wreaking a lot of havoc and there's lots of destruction in our world. But think about what it would be like if Jesus Christ were not preserving it. Uh, Various texts suggest that Jesus Christ, one of the things he's doing is reigning through his people, the church. This is again in Ephesians, which has a very high view of the church. We're going to talk about the church in a couple weeks time. 1 Corinthians 12 suggests that Christ is the head of the church. And I wonder how often we think about our churches this way. When was the last time you thought about your church as the place where God in Christ is literally reigning through his people? But that's the way the New Testament speaks of it. He's reigning 
through his people. And another widely attested function of the exalted Christ in the New Testament is making constant intercession on behalf of his people. Uh, Paul says this in uh, Romans chapter 8, Hebrews 7 and 10 make this point. 1 John chapter 2, the the apostle John says, hey, listen, we shouldn't sin. Sin is bad. Don't do it. But if you do sin, and if we do sin, we know that we have an advocate making intercession for us, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And the word he uses there for advocate is the Greek word parakletos, which you may recognize from when we talked about pneumatology. The, The Holy Spirit is sometimes called the paraclete, the parakletos, and it means advocate. It means one who comes alongside. That's what it means literally. And so one of the things that the exalted Jesus does is he comes alongside us. He argues our case. He is our advocate. As Paul says it, he lives forevermore to make intercession for us. Now, what does that mean? Uh, Is he interceding on our behalf because God is angry at us? No. Uh, That is not what's going on. Paul makes the argument in Romans 8 that because of the work of Jesus, we have peace with God. So he's not advocating uh, because God wants to condemn us. He advocates when our sins condemn us. Man, have you ever uh, fallen into a a sinful pattern and you feel so much shame and you just feel so accused by it? And then you have the evil one, uh, the diabolos, the slanderer, the devil, the accuser. His name in Hebrew, Hashatan, the one who accuses. It even can mean something like prosecution. So when the devil tries to bring your case uh, to God and say, look at this guy, you can't possibly accept Ryan. Have you seen what Ryan does? Have you seen the way that he was impatient with his wife? Right? Have you seen the way that he was lazy at work? Did you see that? You're really going to go with this guy? right? When the prosecution tries to draw up a case against you, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, intercedes on your behalf. It's as if he says, nope, this trial is done, right? Those charges have already been dismissed, right? It's a beautiful thought that he lives forever to make, forevermore to make intercession for us. So what are some of the concluding implications we can draw from the exaltation of Jesus Christ? Well, number one, Christ is already reigning. He's already reigning. Uh, The whole story of the gospel on one level is about Jesus Christ uh, uh, taking his place as the rightful ruler of all things, of the entire universe. But his reign will one day be complete. And everyone will recognize Jesus Christ as Lord, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. Christ is on the throne right? Uh, Psalm 110, it's a little known Psalm. We probably don't think about it that much. Uh, It's a Psalm uh, where David uh, is reciting a kind of a, uh, presents it as like a conversation that he overhears as it's eavesdropping on the divine counsel of God speaking uh, his plans. And uh, there's a very striking line in Psalm 110, Uh, Or says, my Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put all enemies uh, under your feet and make them your footstool. Now, we probably don't think much about that psalm, but it's the most quoted uh, Old Testament passage in the New Testament, Psalm 110. And the reason that New Testament writers quote Psalm 110 again and again is because it tells the story of a perfectly obedient human being who is also Yahweh, right? The God-man, who after having uh, finished the work of 
of redemption sits down at the right hand of the Father. This verse is quoted all over the place in the New Testament to emphasize that Jesus Christ is on the throne. He's there now. And as we've already said, the exaltation of Christ will climax with Jesus's return in glory. So we must always understand the exaltation in connection, not only with the giving of the spirit, but also with the return of Jesus, which we'll talk about when we cover eschatology at the very end of our time together. To draw it all together, we've been talking in a few parts about the work of Christ. We talked last week about uh, a little bit about the redemptive value of Jesus's life when we talked about recapitulation his perfect obedience on our behalf. And we talked uh, explicitly about the atoning work of his death. But what I want to make clear, and if there's one big takeaway from tonight's talk, is that the work of Jesus is not constrained just to his life or just to his death or even just to his resurrection. But we must include his ascension and his exaltation as part of the atoning work of Jesus. It is all one long atoning narrative. Right? And this is summed up beautifully by John Calvin in his very important book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion. And listen to how he describes the total and ongoing work of Christ. He says, if we seek redemption, we'll find it in his passion, right? his suffering on our behalf. And if we seek acquittal, we'll find it in his condemnation. Right? This is related to the doctrine of justification, which we will talk about next week. Right? We're looking to be acquitted of our sins, of our guilt. We'll find it in his condemnation on our behalf. We'll find remission of the curse in his cross. We'll find satisfaction in his sacrifice. We will find purification in his blood. And we'll find reconciliation in his descent into hell. So what Calvin is trying to say is that all elements of Jesus' suffering and death bring us the benefits of salvation. But listen to what he goes on to say. Mortification of the flesh in his sepulcher or his grave, newness of life in his resurrection, immortality in his resurrection, the inheritance of the celestial kingdom or the kingdom of heaven in his entrance into heaven. Meaning that for us to be totally saved from the sin which enslaves us, we need the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, and the exaltation of the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So this week, my challenge to you is to meditate on and to rest in the comprehensive, total, and ongoing work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. So I'll leave you with that for this week. Uh, next week, when we come together, we will talk about the doctrine of justification. We're going to talk about what happens when we talk about being saved. What does it mean to be saved in the Bible? Well, that's a question we're going to address ourselves to next week. And I will look forward to sharing that discussion with you then. 